0: Hello, today's podcast is brought to you by Gearsource.com, the only global marketplace dedicated to professional production gear. With people strategically located throughout North America, Europe, and Asia, Gearsource has created a marketplace that helps you find a home for your surplus gear, whether that's just up the road or on the other side of the world. Our new state-of-the-art payments system helps to eliminate fraud, but also makes payments easy in whatever currency you or your buyer may prefer. And if you're looking to add to your arsenal of quality production gear, why not save some money and buy with confidence on Gearsource.com? So go ahead, try it. Buy or list something for sale for free today. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Hello and welcome to Geezers of Gear episode number 129 and I'm pretty excited today. Jake Barry. Wow. This guy's the real deal. He's, uh, for those of you who know him, he is a great guy who's very good at his job, tough as nails, you know, super, super strong production manager who's been doing this for a long time. One of the very early guys um, and for those of you who don't, I mean, this is a guy who has worked with the who's who really, I mean, the biggest names, including uh the firm ACDC, Black Sabbath, Metallica Motley Crue, Madonna, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, The Stones, U2. In fact, U2, the big one, the 360, um, the big in the round stadium tour, which was just a monstrous undertaking from a production standpoint. Uh, Shakira, Beyoncé, Insomniac, and of course, The Wiggles. Can't forget The Wiggles. But lots and lots more. I mean, just a really cool guy. So one of the things I want to talk about today is I just read a press release that someone sent to me from D&B, who's a great audio manufacturer, D&B Audio, D&B Sound, D&B whatever it's called. But they make the big line array concert touring stuff that so many acts use, one of the top companies. Arguably, them, L Acoustics, you know, there's three or four top brands. They're one of them. Um, great company out of Germany. <clears throat> and uh, my company does business with them and has for quite some time now. And uh, so, anyways, press release came out today, DNB Direct. And so, you know, the CEO of the company talking about how they're launching a new website which markets and sells their product direct. Initially, in uh, very few countries, I think it's Germany, Austria, and the UK, but um, planned to expand from there. And so, of course, they make light in the press release, as any company does and would of the fact that they're selling direct so it's more of a service we want to provide a more valuable service we want to speak more directly to our clients and be able to provide the information they need much more quickly Um, it's all being billed as uh, greater efficiency Uh, but you know the fact is they're selling direct they're um, you know they are communicating directly with the client with the end user and selling to that end user direct now I'm making it sound like I'm against this I'm not really against this and and therefore now the people are going to jump on me and say that I'm you know, against dealerships, and and I want to abolish all dealerships because we deal in extremes now. Of course, we can't just be uh, in the center somewhere and say no dealerships. In some senses, are or in some cases are very good, and it's the exact solution to going to market. And then in other cases, dealerships are not the right solution for going to market. Uh, I happen to believe that car dealerships seem to work out quite well, even if they're factory-owned car dealerships you need a place where people can go and look and drive and shop and compare to other cars <clears throat> excuse me and uh so you know there there are really good case studies or case uses for for dealerships and then there are situations where dealerships probably are not the most efficient or effective way to communicate with your customers and to get that product to the customers. But I've been saying this since probably near the beginning of COVID that I see dealerships kind of becoming less uh, coveted, let's call it. I think that more and more manufacturers are, number one, they're going to be disappointed in the fact that their dealers so quickly turned their backs on them. But, you know, in, in fairness to the dealers, if they have no end users buying products, then, uh, you know, they they can't serve the manufacturer very well. It's not really their fault. It's the market's fault. But in other cases, I've seen dealers who have just kind of gone to the lowest common denominator. They've basically, it's been a race to the bottom. So they're either selling on price or they're selling on overall Um, product features or brand du jour kind of stuff. In other words, they're abandoning their dealership relationships with companies that they've been dealers of for long, long times. And they're going to whoever makes it most painless for them to do business today. They're thinking very short term. And I get that. Trust me. I mean, there's a lot of need out there. There's a lot of companies who you know haven't survived won't survive and some that'll survive but it's a very painful survival and so by no means am i judging anyone on any side of this equation i'm just pointing out the obvious that what's happening is we're starting to see and dnb is a major move in this direction we're starting to see manufacturers who are looking to sell direct um, what was the other one? Was it Loud Technologies, uh, who announced I don't know a few weeks ago or a month ago that they were going direct and putting up full e-commerce and and selling direct to end users, and they were going to order they were going to open two companies that they called Super Partners. One was Amazon, and one was Sweetwater, and all other dealers were basically being fired. And you know, again, I get it. Uh, But on the dealer side, and by the way, I'm one of those unique, weird people who's been on all sides of this equation. I've been on the dealer side. I've been on the manufacturer side. I've been on the sort of middleman side. I've been in every position. I've been on the end user side. And uh, so I've been, I've played every role in this game and I understand all of them quite well. And, you know, I just think it's inevitable. I think with the internet, the growth of the internet... The power of the internet, the tools that are available on the internet, the efficiencies of the internet, and the Amazon factor. You know, the fact that Amazon has made it so easy to get product, whether it's a musical instrument or it's a piece of sound equipment or whatever it is, it just becomes easier and easier to get that product because there's such an incredible uh, logistics powerhouse at, at Amazon, you know, they can ship it to you cheaper, they can get it to you faster, they have all the money in the world, so they can do what they need to do from a, from a standpoint of, of resources. Um, so I think it's inevitable, in a sense. And whenever something like that happens, what I always tell people, and I've told myself the same thing and tried to do it as well, is that if someone's coming to eat your lunch, what you want to do is you want to eat your lunch first. So, in other words, if, if someone's trying to kill me, I want to kill myself. I want, I want to be the one who is responsible for my future and for my death and for my survival. I don't want some other company to decide whether or not or how I survive this situation. So, you know, for me, that's a very, very important factor is that i control my survival i control my future i control whether or not or how these companies are going to impact my business and so you know that to me is 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 really what's driving a lot of this obviously some companies are going to do it some companies are going to go direct and sell direct as a um somewhat of a uh knee jerk reaction. They're going to do it as a reaction, not as a business model or a plan or something that they've developed over a long period of time. Uh, You know, they're looking at today's situation. They're seeing that COVID has really negatively impacted their business and caused them harm and made them lose business and lose sales. And they're panicking and saying we better go online because we don't have dealers who are active right now. Our dealers are all asleep because you know, their businesses have been so negatively impacted. So now we need to do something in a big hurry. And so they move their business online and they sell direct. And again, I'm not judging. I'm not saying that's a bad decision. In some cases, I think it's a very good decision, but you know, I think that there's, there's sort of a backstory to all of this. And, um, it really, at the end of the day, what you need to be doing is taking really great care of your customers and your vendors and just being nice. You know, basically, how can I be more nice? How can I take better care of the people who we represent? And I know at GearSource, this is a daily challenge for me. This is uh, I know that I have customers who are listening to this and I have, I have vendors and sellers who are listening to this and saying, bullshit you know but the truth is this is what keeps me awake at night is how can i do a better job for our sellers and for our buyers on this platform not how can i make more money uh, you know to me money is always basically a byproduct of hard work and doing the right thing and being nice and being kind and and trying to add more value pro- provide more value to your client base whether you know, you're know you a musician or you're a retailer or you're a hairdresser, if you do a better job and you provide a better service and you deliver more value to that customer, chances are not only are they going to reward you with tips and, and higher paychecks or whatever it is, but they're going to reward you with their business. They're going to be loyal. They're going to keep giving you their business. That's the ultimate reward is, you know, given all the choices and options I've got out there, I, I choose to do business with you. And that's very important. And that's something that, you know, anyone who's a marketer or who owns a company as an entrepreneur uh, is going to tell you that that is the little bit of really important stuff that is not really easy to buy. You can't just spend a little bit of money on a Facebook ad and go out and buy loyalty You can probably force someone to pay attention to you for a few short seconds, but you're not going to get any loyalty out of that. That doesn't mean just because they see your ad and you count an impression on that, it does not mean that they're going to then buy something from you. And even if they do buy something from you, that doesn't make them a long-term loyal customer. That just means that you offered them a good deal this one time, they happened to see it in an ad and they went and bought it. You know, your ad performed well, but that doesn't mean your company performed well. So if your company performs well and you do the things that you're supposed to do and you add a lot of value and you care about that customer relationship and the vendor relationship, I believe not only are you going to survive, but you're going to thrive. And I think this year, especially 2021. You know, to me, 2020 was sort of the year of survival. And I know a lot of companies are in survival mode today and they're listening to this going, what the hell is he talking about? It's no longer survival. You know, I know there's a lot of companies, I talk to them every day who are in more pain today than they were, uh, you know, mid last year, end of last year. Today, they're sort of really coming down to the wire where they expected PPP or they expected the restart act to come through or they expected something good to happen or concerts to return or something to happen and nothing has happened and some of those companies you know I spoke with one just a few days ago who is a company that I've looked up to for 20 years and thought wow these guys are such a well-run company well-managed well-funded well-capitalized just a really great company and um you know, they're on the ropes right now, that company. And uh, again, it's a company I've looked up to for a very long time. This isn't just someone I met like last year or two years ago. It's someone who I've known for, for 20 years and have done business with for 20 years or 20 years plus, I should say. And again, I always thought of the owner and management of this company to be sort of top of the industry. Like these are as good as it gets And right now, they're struggling bad. I mean, if something doesn't happen soon, their bank is probably going to bury them. And so there's a lot of companies like that. But 2021, to me, is a year when you have a massive opportunity. And hopefully, most of the people listening to this made a lot of changes, not only to your personal life and your personal way of doing things and your personal habits and stuff, hopefully... You're on a better diet now, hopefully you have a better exercise routine now. you have a better relationship with your significant other. Um, but also, hopefully you've looked at your business or your opportunities or your job and found ways to improve on that and found ways to reinvent yourself and to, you know, remember my immortal words, day 91, which really could have been day 391. it didn't matter. The idea was, if this is X number of days that we're going to be in this thing, this COVID pandemic thing, um, what does the next day look like? The day after is probably what I should have called it instead of day 91. The day after. What's the day after this look like? And I actually just listened to a, uh, or watched a YouTube video with Dave Grohl talking about the new album and you know what that first show walking up the steps backstage and the house lights go down and the band gets introduced what's that going to feel like and and he said something like you know that's a recurring dream that i've had every week for about 40 weeks now and you know that's that's our industry everybody just really wants to get back behind that console or behind the stage or behind the drum kit or whatever it is that you do you want to get back to doing that because that's what you're passionate about that's what you've you know spent the last 10, 20, 50 years doing and you want to do it again. And, and I understand that. But the idea about 2020 was just improving the skill set, you know, adding tools to your toolbox so that the day after is, is a better day than what it was going to be on its own. You're, you're basically altering the course. You're changing, uh, you're changing what that might look like and you're changing the outcome in doing so. You know, by by adding tools and by changing your attitude towards things and by changing, you know, the value that you're going to deliver to people or to your customers or your employees or your employer, by changing that, you are changing your outcome. And I know I'm trying to sound like a, a motivational speaker here. I'm really not. But it's amazing how many people I talk to every day. And, you know, all they want to talk about is that series on Netflix or, um, you know, sports or the weather or whatever, like, you know, for me, this has been probably one of the most frustrating, but most exciting times in my entire career. This last, I'd say seven, eight months has been one of the most exciting. I've learned more. I've changed more, not only as, as a business person, but as a company, I've changed more. I've, I've evolved in the last seven or eight months, uh, completely both personally and professionally And so I guarantee you the next day for me, the day after is going to look completely different than whatever that day is would have looked prior to my making these changes and prior to COVID, prior to being stuck in a pandemic. And so I hope that you've looked at it the same way. And, you know, I think 2021, as I said, I think it's going to be the year where we're not in survival mode as much anymore. We're now sort of peeking out the, sky's turning a little bit blue. And I think what's going to happen is customers and and vendors and partners in the industry are going to be looking around to see where the value is. And if you're not adding value beyond what you did prior to COVID, I believe you might find yourself on the outside. You might find yourself in the dark when everybody else is in the light. And so, you know, that's what you need to be doing is is not thinking about how can I make more money this year than I did last year or more than I did in 2019 or just recover my business to the same revenue I used to be at. How can I evolve and be better? How can I, you know, what can I do? What are the changes that I can keep making and what are my habits that I can change that will add more value to my employees, my employer, my customers, my vendors, whoever it is. Whoever you're providing value to, it might be just your girlfriend or boyfriend or wife or whatever. Um, But adding more value, being nicer, thinking about what other people need. And I'm not talking like, a you know, I'm not trying to be soft here and say, you know, it's all about your feelings. It's not that. It's just about... If I had a good relationship with someone prior to COVID, and I mean a partner, a business partner, like a a, a seller on our website or a buyer on our website, if I had a good relationship with them prior to COVID, I want to have an amazing relationship with that company on the way out. I want to have a better relationship with my employees. I want to have a better relationship with my bank. I want to provide more value. And... The thing is, when you're providing a lot more value, what usually happens is you're rewarded. And you don't do it because of the rewards. You don't do it for the money. You do it because it's the right thing to do. And then what happens is all the good things flow. I'm telling you. I mean, this has been my experience. It's been what I've learned from self-help leaders and motivational leaders since I was 18 years old. You know, if you get what you give, basically, you, if you put out great, positive, really awesome things, that's probably what you're eventually going to get in return. And so, you know, it's it's real. I promise you that. So anyways, enough of the motivational speech for today. So, uh, like I said, Jake Barry, this guy's a superstar among production managers. I think he's probably the most loved, the most feared the most, uh, uh, just the guy that you're going to go to. If you want to do the biggest thing in the world and you want to do it right, you call up Jake Barry. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Well, good afternoon there, Mr. Jake Barry. How are you?
1: I'm great, thank you very much. How are you doing?
0: I am doing very well. So it's funny, I just, uh, I did a little uh, pre-recording thing, intro here, and I talked about you as being this production manager for all of these massive uh, acts. And and we'll talk about a few of those uh, on our our recording today. But the Wiggles, damn it. You were the production (laughs) manager for the Wiggles. Yeah, I was. um, Forget about all that other stuff. I mean, the Stones, you two, who cares? But the Wiggles, come on now.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, there was a stage where you need to diversify. And um, there was a company in Dallas, Texas, called Hit Entertainment, and a very good lady named Sloan Coleman. Yeah. And they also handled the Barney franchise. And at the end of I, – I can't remember. I think I was on my way to do a Rolling Stones advance in India, and the company that I was working for – been, must have been TNA then that um, was doing the Stones – they were interested in doing Barney, so we stopped by in Dallas and we met up with the Barney people. And I think we got more than we expected. We expected, and it was a massive operation—the Barney uh, operation, very you, you know well put together. With um, and I am leading into the Wiggles, yeah. And uh, so we got there and. Uh, I think they didn't, weren't, weren't very interested. And the gentleman who ran the company was a fantastic human being by the name of Dick Lynch. Mm-hmm. So I got home, and I got on great with him. And he's a very, very honest, um, y- y- you know, honest, god god-fearing person. And just one of the nicest guys you could meet. And actually, in fact, the whole operation is. Sloan was, was the, the producer, was a bubbly, vibrant character you could, who you could not resist. Yeah, and um, their their um, feelings and their passion towards Barney was unbelievable, and so they kind of passed DNA, and and I got a phone call from Dick going, "You know, we really like you. Would you be would you be willing to work with us on uh, on booking the shows? Do you want to be the promoter?" Which was totally out of the blue, and. I sat down here and I I I did a little bit of research and I said I think it'd be better if I worked in partnership with somebody because I wasn't ready for that step. So anyway, we went off and did the Barney tour and I and it was fantastic. Let me tell you, the Barney tour was a great foundation and a great stepping stone for young people coming into the business. A bit like you know AAA, AA in the major leagues, yeah. if you know what I mean. Yeah. And it was a fantastic training ground for people to learn their trade. And there was an awful lot of people that came through uh, the, the, the Barney organization who have been very, very successful. Um, you know, and I'll name, I'll name a few. There was Ian Kinnersley, who I had down as a Barney production manager. He was one of my carpenters way back in the Metallica days. Now, look, he, he is a well-known production manager, done things like Kanye West, the Eagles foreigner and now is, is going to do Harry Styles so he came a long way Seth Goldstein wow. great production manager is a production manager for Sting
0: yeah
1: um you know Flory a lady out there Flory Turner is now was my head carpenter on on YouTube and all the tours I do Todd Monger was went on to be one of my riggers. Um, Mimi Sullivan came on to be a well known production manager for Chris Adams Adamson And so it was a fantastic training. Why why is
0: that though, Jake?
1: Why is it? Because I felt that people, you know, it was a bit like, I think that the bands in the early days when they played the clubs, the theaters, arenas, everybody came in and learned their trade and you could do it there because it wasn't so intense. Right. And if you made mistakes, you could rectify them and you just learn and you learned how to set up a show and how you took it down. I just felt it was a great training ground. And, and uh, the people that came through and did really well there. great. And I, I forgot Harold Barons. Harold Behrens was a carpenter, turned out to be a great stage manager, production manager for stage manager for Room 5 and Mary J. Blythe and people like that. It was great. That's so wild. we did, we did that. And believe it or not, one of our opening acts on night was the Wiggles. So, or they, it was, I don't know what it was, or they were playing a tour when we put Barney on and, we put the Wiggles on the front or something, or I got to meet the Wiggles because Hit Entertainment took over the American sign. And, and the guys were fantastic. And their, their bass, I mean, they were like a rock band, a punk band from Australia who started playing kids songs and became massive. Yeah. And they well, really you, they really liked the idea of having somebody helping them who'd worked for the Rolling Stones in U in U two. So yeah. they said, you, Jake, will you help us out with a tour? So I did. And you know, and it wasn't the kind of money, but it was fantastic. And it was and for me was just furthering the things I've done. And I had a great time of the week.
0: But you know what, Jake? Like you, you know, anyone in this industry, we constantly get bothered for tickets and that tour like when the wiggles got huge and i couldn't tell you what tour it was i'm not a fan quite honestly i don't know much about them but when they got huge i never and i think i was with martin maybe at the time or something and we had a bunch of lights out there i don't remember why i was even connected to it but i was getting calls like crazy and i was like no 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 i don't no sorry and uh, but never like Taylor Swift, nothing like that compared to the Wiggles. Because everyone has kids, and everyone wanted tickets. So I can't even imagine. You probably had an assistant just to take care of ticket requests.
1: Uh, you, you know, we were always very accommodating. You know, with them and and the first thing was like moms and grandparents would push their way to the front or. Line up outside the bus so the kids could meet the Wiggles. That's it was
0: hilarious.
1: It was un, you know, unbelievable, and and you know doing the kids shows, it was great. And and you know I'm sure nobody will mind, but this is to honest the truth. Barney at Radio City, uh, John Bon Jovi wanted to bring his kids, and um, we had to make him sign a press release. I thought that was very ironic. You know, huh,
0: that's but, funny. You
1: know, but you come down and. You see all these stars and celebrities in a different mode with their kids. It was fantastic to see all of them in a normal life, how they lead their life at home, how they are great with their kids and not on stage performing to thousands of people. So I learned a lot by that. Actors who'd bring their kids in, but it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. And and I I, like my Barney and Wiggles, and and I did Bob the Builder for them. I don't know that. It was was great. We had. Like, we had great people out. We did great productions.
0: And- well, and it's probably so low stress compared to everything else you do. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, the show still has to go on, and it's still a very professional show, and it's still people are paying a lot of money to be there and all that stuff, but just you don't have rock stars breathing down your neck. You know, it's just yeah, a but, different vibe. You know,
1: they, are, they are. Like, was our stars. I mean, I remember when the tour we did, Jeff... Uh, Jeff, Jeff came up to me. No, not Jeff. I'm sorry. Anthony, Anthony field. He was like, Anthony was the leader and then Murray played guitar and Jeff was, I'll get this right. It was, I can't remember the yellow wiggle. forget me, but it was, Anthony was the blue wiggle. Murray was the red. Jeff was the purple. And, um, Oh, Greg was yellow. (laughs) So they came to me, how are we going to start the show, Jake? We want to do like welcome to the city. So, and we were in New Orleans rehearsing. I, go, I got a great idea. and goes, I said, let's go out and we'll get a g- couple of golf carts. And we we were taking video on the road. And I got the video directing the camera guy. And we had, you know, the Wiggles car. What do they call it? Oh, I can't remember. And so they they got in in, in a Wiggle mobile. And, and they drove. And we were in the front with a golf cart with a camera. And we were filming them arriving at a venue. And we filmed them, and we came up, and we put a ramp at the back of the stage, and we drove the car up the ramp. Yeah. And in it, we would block it where we would go to the marquee. We send the film guy to the marquee where it would send the, the name of the arena, and we'd put that in the video. And the Wiggles would come up on on film on the screens at the back of the car. I mean, this is rock star opening. Yeah, and then, that's and cool. The music, and the music would play, and the car would drive in from the side of the stage. I mean, but we did that in an afternoon and had so much fun. The guys nearly fell out the the car. We oh, we were laughing that's all hilarious. the way. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, but, I didn't know. Like you mentioned, they were a punk band. I didn't know that. Like I, I again, us, I they didn't they know. know much rock, much I don't
1: know if it's a punk band, but they were a bunch of rockers. Huh. I mean, Murray Murray is a great guitar player. Yeah. Murray, is, like Murray, would sit down and check and play ACDC songs. Uh, that's and, so and, funny. Know, it was fun that. You know, sometimes, you know, we would play tricks on them. You know, I, they had this song where you put a horse outfit on and come on the stage. And, and they were so much fun that one day I dressed up in a horse outfit and came on stage. And, it, and, and Anthony looked around and just cracked up laughing, and they couldn't stop laughing because I was, I was dancing on stage. It was hilarious. I, <laughs> you know, it was fantastic.
0: That's so cool. That's funny.
1: And I just want to say I owe a lot of that to Sloan Coleman, a lovely lady. Vibrant producer who lives in Dallas. I think out of the business of selling real estate. That's cool. Great person. That's cool. And the late Dick Lee. Dick Lee, great guy.
0: So I don't want to spend much time talking about this, but you know, there's this thing, this this COVID thing, this pandemic that we're all kind of surviving through right now. And so, for you, when when was your last gig when this all
1: started? Do you? I'm sure you remember well, what in, it was. In actual fact, my last. Um, a gig, a festival in Mexico, uh, EDC, um, in February, February of last year. But it wasn't my last gig. I actually uh, worked for a company called the Riot Games, yeah, and that's esports, and they are the producers of League of Legends. Oh, okay. Yes, of course. And I got hired as a consultant to go and work for them at the League of Legends World Finals in Shanghai, China in October. Oh, that's cool. It was very, very cool. That's and cool. like, for that was, it was like the Wiggles and Barney. It was a diversification away from rock. Yeah. And you, you know, we have to, we have to say that, you know, there's the esport gaming thing is here to stay and it's going to be part of our world.
0: Oh, I think it's so, massive.
1: So I, I did a show I, and I did all the COVID, you know, regulations. I got tested before I got on the flight to, to Shanghai, which was, no simple feat. You had to get tested, get the result, send to the Chinese embassy who would approve it, get in the flight all within 72 hours. Wow. And um, then you, I mean, the Shanghai operation when we landed was superbly organized. And, um, you know, you, you go in, you get, you ask the questions, you get another test, you're put in a, in, a, in a pen, you're given a QR code, which is all your information where you are, and it's also your health thing. Yeah. So then they pick you up and they, they took us to um, a quarantine hotel. We no lobby, a piece of paper. Here's your room number. They took us all up to the floors and they, and they're fully dressed in hazmat gear. There's no mask. Wow. It's full there, there's, I don't know. I don't know how you guys go for language. There's no fucking around. Here. Yeah. There's that's
0: what up. I was going to say.
1: Yeah. And, and, and they put you in your room and they knock on your door three times a day. And that's breakfast lunch and dinner, and you do not go out of your room for how long two weeks Wow, crazy I mean and they don't there's no room service you have a choice you're vegetarian or meat wow
0: you know John Featherstone right
1: and um, not very well but I know of him yes
0: yeah, so John was in Dubai a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me a similar story where um Not that similar, really, but just basically a a country that's got it together. Like, they've got the protocol down, right? So he landed, and uh, when he got off the plane, he took two tests. One was, like, an instant test. One was the, I think it's called a PCR test or whatever. Yeah. And, um, you had to download this app prior to doing the tests. And so you got this app and now it shows, you know, both your tests are done and you're waiting for results. And he said, by the time he got his bags, he got the first result back that said negative, good to go. It turned green. And you have to show that app to leave the airport, right? Yeah. And so he left the airport, went to his hotel. When he checked into the hotel, he showed the green and, um, went up to his room And less than 24 hours later, his other test went green. And like two minutes later, the hotel front desk called him and said, hello, Mr. Featherstone, you're good to go. You can leave the hotel now. And would you like a car service or whatever, right? Yeah. And uh, he was just like, wow, you know, these guys have Uh, it right.
1: I agree with him. Look, I I give a lot of credit to Riot Games for their organization and the determination to go ahead. And so we spent two weeks in quarantine in the hotel and I, I was lucky because I, and this is all related to COVID, but a little exaggerated. I, I was lucky because I got a gamer's room, which is a bit like a rock star room, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I got a stationary bike. So I stationary bike for uh, about 200, I think it was like 220 miles over the two weeks. Wow. Good for you. That's awesome. And, And I walked up and down the room for 30, 30 miles. And I must say that one of our guys, one of the stage managers, when he arrived, he was very involved in charities in in the UK. Yeah. He decided that he would walk 30 kilometers in his room in one day for charity. And, you know, and and the Riot Games are very much into the apps, the WhatsApp, the, the signals, whatever, to send messaging and grouping, which was all new to me. Yeah. And I saw this and he said, I'm doing this for charity. And I texted him back. I go, I've never met you. I don't know who you are, but I think this is real crazy what you're doing. So here's my donation. And I just couldn't, you know, think. And and then the the Riot Games people, then when you did your quarantine, they asked us if we would spend a week in our bubble, which was hotel to venue and back in Shanghai. And as we know, they said, you can't leave the hotel. And we know that room service in a restaurant is expensive we'll give you a 25, we'll give you 25% towards your food. Oh, that's cool. And then we went, we had to get a test to get on the bus. We got to the venue, we got off and then masks were mandatory. And we worked hand in hand, no social distancing with a bunch of local Chinese people, um, people from Singapore, Canada, Europe, all four corners of the globe. Wow. And it felt very safe and, they served us lunch there and we tried to social distance by, by, um, you know, segregating lunch and we did our best keeping keep the meter. Yeah. It was, good. I thought it was, good, and I, everything down to the right games, people, great organization. And I, I learned a little bit about gaming. Yes. Not yeah, so a lot, but I learned a little bit. And, and the way they approach it is very, yeah. very good.
0: You, you talk about gaming and I know you're a big racing fan. My, my son's a race car driver and um so when
1: you must not have any money then (laughs) yeah i'm
0: completely broke why do you think i'm talking to you right now (laughs) i sell these things no i'm kidding
1: you know um, you know how to make a small fortune out of racing of course
0: yeah yeah start with a big one start with a big one one, yeah yeah well i prefer to start with someone else's large fortune but um (laughs) so he's a race car driver and and uh he when COVID started, they delayed the series last year, and so he had a gaming system already. Not a gaming system, but a uh, a simulator, you know, because he practices. Yeah. He uses it to practice. So if we're racing at Mid-Ohio, he'll spend eight hours a day on Mid-Ohio on his simulator.
1: So what series does he race in?
0: Formula 4.
1: Yeah, okay. Right now.
0: He's 16. He just turned 16, and uh, uh, so he's in Formula 4. He you know, of course, like every uh, aspiring race car driver, he wants to drive Formula One, he'll settle for Indy, he'll settle for, you know, at this point, he wants to make a living as a race car driver. So it could be anything, it could be sports cars, it could be, you know, a a factory team, you know, test car driver, whatever, he just wants to drive and he's very good at it. But so back to the esports thing. So, you know, when, he used it just as a practice tool, as, a, as, a, as an exercise tool, basically, just to keep his, his senses sharp and also to learn tracks so that when he went to a brand new track for the first time, he was very familiar with where the bumps are, where the entry and exit of every turn is and just everything, right? And uh, so when COVID started, they started like trying to replace some of these racing series with E-series and at first he was really excited about it and then he just got really frustrated because what happens is when you crash in uh on a simulator it doesn't hurt <laughs> you know you don't get hurt yeah yeah so I mean, you've yeah. now got complete asshole drivers who are fearless and you get some of those in real cars but not so often plus the cost of of you know destroying a car in in real life is very expensive And so he just, he got very frustrated very quickly because, you know, guys that were just terrible drivers that he knew he was far better than um, were taking him out in in turn one, lap one. and, And it was just like, come on, you know, I don't need this in my life. So he just went yeah. back to practicing and now for fun every once in a while he jumps on iRacing and goes and races against his buddies. He's always doing these uh, these drifting tracks or, or uh, yeah. rally tracks and stuff now because it's just so out of control and it, it really does help teach you car control. Yeah. Um you yeah,
1: actually racing is good, but you know, like they say, the right it was right legal League, League of Legends is in all intents for people like it's a video game. Yeah. I mean and then you know, and it's subscribed by like, a, I believe, like 100 million people. Right. And, you know, they're your little subscription, and then you buy all your levels. And the world finals for Riot usually, and it's all related to COVID, the Riot finals usually are in five cities, and we were in China, so they would have played the semifinals in Beijing, the quarters in semis, Shanghai, Beijing, Huan. Guangzhou, and, and maybe Shanghai in an arena I see. with a production. And then the final is in a soccer stadium. Jesus. And what we did really was we did the opening ceremony. It's very much like the World Cup and the Olympic Games, the Worlds, but we do it all in one day. So you have an opening ceremony, it's 20 minutes, and you then have the finals and, you know, and, and the players are in their pods and they're on big screens. And then you have the 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 uh, the uh, the end ceremony of the present presentation of the trophy. That's very very good, well organized. I mean, I have nothing nothing but good things to say about the people at Riot Games, and absolutely nothing bad. It was fantastic, great experience. Right. That's anyway. So that was my last gig. Yeah. Um, Covid has been. I'm nothing short sure of a disaster for our industry.
0: Yes, it certainly has. Um,
1: you know, both in not working and and financial and, and as companies and individuals. Hundred percent. Yeah.
0: 100%. For, for me,
1: on a personal level, and I know this may sound bad. When I finished U two in in twenty nineteen, I was shattered. I was burnt out. I was tired, and. I really didn't want to see a plane or a bus. I mean, we weren't on buses. And so in my mind, and I said to, to my girlfriend, you know, in, in 2020, I'm really, I don't want to tour. And, and I- So I this is these, all your fault. Yeah, I'm to blame. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so I decided that I would just do my EDC stuff for a Insomniac. And if I could pick up another thing, I would. So for me, I thought it was time- to To take a break and take care of my life a little bit, I was right. not in the greatest shape. I was tired, so I took time. I, I started riding my bicycle again, and I started getting physiotherapy on some of the my you know my ailments a little bit to yeah. try to get it done. And I really didn't do anything. And I also, you know, my girlfriend's Greek, and I spent a lot of time in Greece. Uh, so, good for you. and she can't come here because our friend Trump banned all Europe all foreign visitors traveling to America. Right. Unless you go through a third party country for two weeks. And, um, so for me personally, it was fantastic. I did exactly what I wanted to, what I was planning, not to this extent. I was planning to do a little bit more work to tell you the truth. So I got myself back in, in great shape, got down to some weight that I had had, you know, since I left school, you know, the best part of thirty-five, forty years ago, yeah. so I'm, I'm still doing it now. Yeah. COVID in our business for, and um, devastating. It, yeah. yeah, I mean, um, so many people. You know, they they all talk about the bands can't tour and touring, but you know, it's really only the tip of the iceberg. Is all the people that rely rely on tours, stagehands, ushers, security, um, you, you know, merchandising guys, um, you know, truck drivers, bus drivers. Um, all those kind of people who have been decimated by no work. And, yeah. and, you know, a lot of them, you know, like the security only get paid for, you know, certain shows and it's hand to mouth. And I, I believe that, you know, uh, I did read at the start of it that Mark Cuban said he, he was so upset by it all that when he played, and they didn't play every time the Mavericks played at home last year. He would pay the security people their salary even though they weren't there. Yeah, I remember reading that too. Yeah, you know, I mean that's, uh, I mean right at that point, if he have stood as an independent candidate for the president of United President of the United States, he'd have won. You know, so so things like that. But you know, a lot of people just can't afford to do things like that. So all those kind of people, it's it's really sad. And you know, I do a little bit. I'm involved with musically fed with Maria Brewer here in Scottsdale. Yeah. And she rang me up one day. She goes, Jake, you know, I I, I get leftover food from venues, you know. From, she did it from shows and fed the poor. She said, but I had a lot of stage hands. Ask, you know, people ask me about that. So, but I don't know how to get in touch with the people. So I said, hang on a minute, and 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 I got Jeff Keat from Rhino. I got him on the phone and explained what we wanted to do, and would he be interested? He go, yes. So then. I put Jeff uh, on the spot. I said, Jeff, if I make a donation of this much money, will you match it? And I don't know whether he said it out of fear or whether he said, it, he Don't, go, yes, I will. So we started and we managed to feed some people in, in Phoenix and everybody got on board. And, you know, the, and then we spread to like another seven or eight cities across America. That's amazing. And we're still trying for more. I think we're coming to Orlando in, in April or March. And um, so I, I felt that that was good. I, I, I'm not physically there because I was in Greece, but I, I kind of lended my support and my advice. And you know, if if there's somewhere we can go, and I know somebody, I'll pick up the phone and call them. So well, we're all trying to do our best. You know, you know
0: what? As you're coming down to Florida, I live in Palm Beach, but um, I know like virtually everyone in the industry especially in the lighting side of the business, but certainly reach out to me if I can somehow help. The other thing is I, I started the, we make events thing here in North America that, uh, uh, started on one of my zoom calls and it was just a harebrained idea from, from my mouth to say, Hey, why don't we do this thing? And it just blew up and grew into this monstrous thing that, that, you know, continues today and is now actively involved in in working with uh, Strickland and some others on creating vaccination sites using roadies and using venues and things. So, you know, if, if I can ever help on on uh, what you you're know, doing. You right do, and
1: you know, if ever I can help on any of these things. I talk to Michael all the time. Yeah. I think I think Michael has been a great advocate and I've only got a hundred percent support for his endeavor. In trying to get us to the top of the list because it it seems that nobody's interested in touring, even though it's a major billion dollar industry that generates so much income and and taxes that we get cut short and we're not involved in in any of the programs to protect people. Right. Unfortunately, Jake,
0: a lot of it's just noise, though. Like a lot of it is where... You know, like right now, Save Our Stages, for example, just was able to get a, a pretty big grant uh, as part of, uh, you know, a recent deal done in, in the Fed. And what happens is these press releases go out saying, hey, these venues are all taken care of. And now the concert industry is saved, basically. But guess what? It's just
1: the Even venues. The iceberg again, What's that? It's the same. We've We've touched the tip of the iceberg. We haven't well, but you it's know, just the, the venue. So the venues the, are really well iceberg, taken
0: care of, but just the, iceberg, the venue.
1: The top of the iceberg never sank the Titanic. It was what's underneath.
0: Yeah, hell yeah, of course. <clears throat> hell yeah,
1: that's frustrating. The, the, the lack of understanding. Yeah. Of what's involved in theatre and musical and the arts and culture and rock and roll. The lack of the you know all, it's amazing that a lot of people show up. And you see a stage at the end you go, man, I didn't know they had a stage like that in every arena in America. They have no idea that it takes 100 people, uh, you know, and it starts at 11 o'clock the night before when you load out and you put it in trucks and you go to your city and you load it and you give them a show. A lot of people don't realize the magnitude of what goes on. I I
0: completely agree. But also I think even within our industry, there's there's a little bit of – There's a bit of a disconnect because like, and that's why with We Make Events, it was always not just about the companies. It was about the companies, the venues, the people, you know, we advocated the PUA, the extended uh, unemployment thing, you know, it wasn't just about saving companies with this restart thing that we were really pushing hard on. Certainly that saved the companies, but when you save the companies, you save the employees as well. And so that was a pretty big deal. But, you know, I I constantly hear individuals who are saying, well, you know, all they want to do is take care of the companies. But, you know, like I had a call on Friday. I I honestly was, was so sad I wanted to cry for the guy. You know, it's a guy I've known 25 years. Very, very good production company in our industry. Been running for 40 years and very well managed, extremely well managed, you know, had enough money to to survive virtually anything but you know a very healthy company might have 60 days of reserves not you know not 18 months nobody has that i don't care who you are except the massive public companies like live nation you know other than that nobody has 18 months of reserves and so this guy's about to to go under i mean he's losing his and he's now in his late 60s and he's losing the company that he's built for 40-plus years, and he's losing his, his nest egg, his livelihood. Everything is going down with this yeah. thing unless he can somehow magically save it, and there's just not a lot of angles to save it.
1: No, no. It,
0: it's so sad. It really is. Yeah, you no, know, that's
1: sad, and, and, you know, and it just goes on. But we, in another breath, we all want to go back and do things. Yeah. We all want to tour, but we have to be as one. You know, we we cannot go and play in different states when there's different laws for how many people you can put in. And right now, it's just not feasible to go and work. You know, I live in Phoenix. And I'm a very good manager with, with Ralph Marcello, the general manager of the the arena here. Yeah, they had 1,500 fans, healthcare workers in the arena yesterday. It's great. It's a start but it ain't 15,000 and it's not going to be 15,000 for months. Yeah. And if we come back too soon and something happens, we're going to get such bad press. It's not worth doing, you know? So yeah. I know it's, I know it's tough, but we cannot come back too soon. Yeah. And and, and I look at like, you know, I, I kind of said that um, there's three groups. There's, you know it's a theater tour, there's the arena tour and the stadium tour. So if you narrow them down to sports, you have the basketball team which is the 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 theater tour, you you have the football the American football team, which is the stadium tour. I'm talking about the players being crew here. yeah. and then you have the Premier League, which is the arena tour. yeah. so they're playing, somebody tests positive, they put in a substitute. there's oh, we'll put in we'll put in this the backup guard. Or we'll put in a backup point. We'll put in a backup quarterback. We'll put in a backup wide receiver. We'll put in a backup goalkeeper and a go and, and a striker. So does that mean that we have to carry a backup sound guy, a backup video guy, a backup backline, a, a backup monitor guy?
0: Yeah, that makes it. Pretty challenging, obviously. You know, I mean,
1: it, 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 as hard as playing the playing math to,
0: is to begin with, you know it, it's. And
1: we're playing to people; they can can They they've all cancelled games. The NFL cancelled games. The NBA cancelled games. The, the Premier League have cancelled games. You know, with notice, which is great, which is the right thing to do. But they don't have fifteen thousand fans to say, "I'm sorry, you paid for your test, but there's no show tonight. We're not going to tell you when it's coming back." Yeah. That's what we got to be careful of. There, there's just no,
0: you know, the part of, I mean, a big part of all of the trouble that we're all facing, regardless of what side of politics you're on, is politics. You know, it, it's just, it's this sides thing. And you know, like I saw, I saw a picture, and it's become a meme already from the Super Bowl of, um, of Tom Brady walking into the stadium with other players and. Other players were wearing masks. Tom wasn't wearing a mask. He's just been tested like twice already that day. And he's walking into the stadium without a mask. And people are going nuts and and saying, how dare he not wear a mask? And, you know, these guys are tested hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the season. And they're the safest little group of people to be together right now. It's as they're exposed to other people when it becomes a problem, right? And well, but look,
1: I haven't seen that and I haven't noticed it, but I don't care. I think he should have wore a mask because yeah. you got people saying you have to wear a mask all the time, the coaches wear them on the sidelines. You know, I yeah. think if you're not actually in the thick of it, you should be wearing a mask. And if you're walking to the stadium, you should be wearing a mask right. because we have to make America wear masks.
0: I, I don't disagree with you. Where I disagree is, is the political divide on everything. I'll give you another, a better example probably would be, um, for example, I, I think it's New York City is about to open restaurants to 25% capacity. I, you know, I don't care what flavor of restaurant, what, what food it is, what size it is, restaurants cannot survive at 25% capacity and they would probably rather stay closed or they would rather stay takeout only because it's cheaper, uh, you know, it's probably closer to profitable to just serve takeout. Yeah, than you can be done
1: with the overhead of a staff. I staff mean, you can't there. do
0: it. You can't run a restaurant on 25% capacity. It's it's just like doing a concert at, you know, I remember standing with, uh, I don't remember if it was an AEG rep or a Live Nation rep, and we were at a, we were at the shed down here in, in Palm Beach, and I said, you know, how's the tour doing, or something like that, and he said, I don't know, turn around and look up, and I turned around and looked up and he said, you know, the, the, the lawn seats, if those are sold out, we're making money, you know? And I said, what? And he goes, yeah, that's how tight it is right now. If we sell out the lawn seats, we're making money. If we don't, we're not. And uh, yes,
1: but back, in, back then pre COVID. Yeah. There was a lot of overpaying of acts.
0: Yeah, true. So that's all going to change a little bit now. I would think.
1: Uh, uh, I would say it would change for at least a month and then it will go back to normal.
0: It, it, you know, it's the same as like I I keep having equipment people reaching out to me and saying, you know, are is every is it going to be a a fight uh you know a battle to the bottom or is it going to be are people going to be ch- gouging? And I said, you know, you're probably going to see a little bit of both depending on timing. Oh, yeah. I agree with you. Uh, yeah, you're going to see a little bit of both. I mean, the problem is people. We'll always somehow fall to the bottom. I don't know how, but, but we, we constantly do it. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, the artist is charging five times as much and we find a way to lose money on a deal. So it doesn't make any sense. But,
1: but anyways. Yeah, I think that's a whole nother hour and a half. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, there's so much to talk about. And we've been sitting here talking about COVID. So I know you started like, I think in the mid 70s. 75.
1: 75.
0: And so, how did that happen? Give me the give me the quick version because I know okay, you're I probably you tired the, of telling I won't it. I will
1: give you the biblical events. But, yeah, no biblical wow. events. I was living in England in a small village, and I was a truck driver, and I was delivering animal feed. Oh, and I, I have a twin brother, and my brother's a thatcher, and that's a person that does straw roofs. Yeah, thatch roofers.
0: Thatch roofs. Yeah. Roofers.
1: Yeah, correct. <laughs> and so he was thatching a roof. Uh, in, a, in another village about 15 miles away. And that happened to, it would belong to Rick Wakeman, you know, the oh, key from Yes. Waitman. Yeah. For yes. Cool. And um, I used to get up at five o'clock in the morning and finish my round early in the morning. And then like all true English people would, would go to the pub for lunch. Of course. <laughs> and that's how you lived in a in small village where I came from. You worked, you went to the pub, you went shopping in the shop and you went to church on Sundays. Very, 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 you know, and your seat in the pub was the same seat every night. That's awesome. And so my mother said, your brother's caught up and he's forgot something. Can you take it down to this house? So I said, okay, so I sacrificed my two pints or more in the pub. (laughs) Yeah. and took off this piece of stuff that my brother needs. I think it's a bit of equipment or something. I get down there and give it to him. And Rick was there. And uh, I gave it to him, and my brother introduced me to Rick. And uh, did Rick you know who he on. was? Oh yeah, we knew who Rick yeah. was. Yeah. Yes, was already big. Because because if you go back to the early days, it, it really didn't start there. My brother thatched roof for a guy called Dave Cousins, who was a member, of, who was a leader of the Straubs and still yeah. playing. And through the Straws, I met Dave, and through the Straws, my brother met Rick, because my brother thatched Dave's house. And that's how I got, you know, it was my brother that got me in. Interesting. And so Rick said, I'm going down the pub. Your brother's working. Do you want to come and have a pint with me? I go, yeah, I'm on my way. So I went down with Rick at the pub and back in and the shut, pub shuts at 2. And the landlord decided that he wasn't, had nothing to do that afternoon. And he comes out and there's Rick and I and a couple of people in the pub and he locks the door, which is called a lock-in. it means if the cops come, they can't get the doors locked and you can run out the back. <laughs> so so we, we drank all day, got absolutely hammered. And you know, then I didn't make it to work the next day, and I didn't get on with the guy's work. For, I got fired. And then Rick was doing this myths and legends of King Arthur and nice at around Table in Wembley Are- on ice in Wembley Arena, and he said to my brother, "Myself, do you want to come up and give me give us a hand?" And we go doing what? And he goes, "Well, you know, just helping pushing boxes and things like that." And I'll I'll get you guys a, I'll get you guys a room. You can share it and come to work. So we did, and we. We helped out. You know, Rick's crew were very nice to us because, boy, we were green. I mean, we were straight off the banana boat, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but was um, it, wasn't everybody at that point? No, they were touring people. They toured. Yeah. I mean, they toured. They did shows. I mean, I played drums in a local band, so I had a bit of idea. I, I knew what a flight case was, just. Yeah. And then at the end of it, Rick goes, he goes, hey, I'm, you know, your brother's married and you're not or he's he's seeing a girl and says, Hey, uh, do you want to come and work for me? And do you want to go to America? And I said, no, thank you. And I said, yes, I would love to. (laughs) And that's how it started. So, you know, I toured America with Rick Whiteman and then the bug caught me and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be in a business and I worked for Rick for four years. And, you know, I owe Rick Whiteman everything. And, it's a great story. You know, Rick's been up and down. He's made money. He's lost money. He's been married. He's been divorced. And he's still the same guy. You know, you, do you know what I mean? He's still the guy. And there's two meetings I've had with Rick uh, that I remember. I went to see him at Chastain Park in Atlanta when the Stones were playing the stadium. And um, I remember pulling up, and the runner got lost, and I could hear, and you and I playing in the background, you yeah. know, the Yes song. You yeah, know, and yeah. I, I was going please find me the door. I, I, I got us. I'm missing this. And so I got there and I went to the side of the stage and it, they took a break and they walked off. And as they walked off, I go, Hello, wakey. How are you? And he walked right by me. And then he came back. He goes, I saw your fucking mother two weeks ago. <laughs> so, and and um, or um, two months ago, we started talking and it was great. And then again, I saw him at Wembley arena uh, with another reun- one of the rescue, you know. And I went back to see him, and he was talking to somebody. And I said, "Oh, I'll, I'll come back." And he goes, "No, no, no, come in." It was the head of some record company. And he goes, "He said, Jake, I want you to meet this guy. He's the head of record company." And he said to the guy, "Record, this is Jake. I gave him his first job in rock and roll." The guy goes, "Yes." He goes, Rick goes, and now he earns more money than I do."
0: That's funny. Yeah. That so, funny. so,
1: and then through Rick, you know, I met a lot of people. And my friend Ian Jeffries was working for Rick, and then he turned out and come to be the tour manager of a little old rock and roll band called ACDC. Oh, there you go. So, and um, and we all drank in the same pub. You know, you could staff an entire road crew from the Warrington pub made a ale. And it's amazing how pubs play, uh, have played a big part in my life, but they
0: have.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm an alcoholic. Um, but... Um, <laughs> And he he said, ACDs, you're looking for a production manager. I go, I've, only, I've never done it. He said, I told him you were the stage manager for Yes, and you got experience. And I go, whoa. What were you for Yes? I did, I did keyboards.
0: Oh, and that's it. You weren't a stage
1: manager at all. No, I was oh. the assistant keyboard guy, but I was the production manager, as you look at it now, for the support act Donovan. Oh, okay. Love Donovan. Okay. Love Don. Great guy. So I was like his guy. Uh, I was his lead. So in theory, I was. But we were on a yes tour, so we did as we were told. But I, I guess I was looking after it. So we went in and 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 Peter Mensch was the manager of ACDC then. Uh, you know, Peter, yeah, of course, super great great guy, Peter. Yeah. And so I guess some we lied pretty good. And ACDC offered me the job, and they said, we we'll, we'll test you. You'll come to um, uh, San Francisco. Our first show is the." Bill Graham auditorium there. And we're going to bring in the legendary Joe Baptista, who was a production manager for Aerosmith and a lot of bands, because it was all a Libra and ACDC were Libra and Krebs and so was Aerosmith. So Joe came in, Joe, you know, remember we did everything by phone. Joe came in and he showed me his advanced sheets. He go, you know, so, and he, I watched, I watched him load in and everything like that and see how things going and get some idea. And, you know, he introduced me to people because everybody knew Joe. And he gave me his thing. He said, listen, I'm going to advance the show. So you advance the show, and the first thing, you, you had the promoter rep, and you had his office number, and if you were lucky, you had the home number, right? Yeah. Then a list of questions like, you know, is lo- what's the loading like? Is there loading docks? Which back then, if you got a loading dock a week or a loading dock a fortnight, it was like you sang five bars of the hallelujah chorus, you know? <laughs> And uh, um, and he did it, wrote it down, you know, house lights, are so they halogen or mercury? You know, what size is the floor? How many dressing rooms? You know, is it union, non-union? All them questions that you ask and things like that. And then he went through his, he wrote, you write everything down. Then he went through his crew calls and I listened in and he goes, right, said so the next one you're going to do and I'm going to listen. And, and I'm, I'm shaking a little bit. I must admit.
0: Yeah.
1: And, um, so I did it, and um, it went well. He goes, "You know what? Um, you can do this." And so, and this, I've always told a story. And 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 Joe always carried. You know, you'd made it in those days if you had a a gold or a silver Halliburton briefcase. Yeah. You know, so Joe had a Halliburton briefcase, and I, I never knew what was in it. He was always shut. And when he said okay, you can do it and you get a trial and we'll see how it goes, he ended up in it. he had a bottle of Johnny Walker in there.
0: <laughs> as you do. And
1: so, so Joe taught me everything. He let me go and, and I was I was determined to do it. And we were all learning. A C D C had just released Highway to Hell, so they were coming up through. Yeah. You know, we had a lot of good guys and we worked as a team. So we all learned a lot on that tour. And that's where I learned my chops as a production manager. That's wild. And I was a production manager, stage manager and the head of security. Jesus. And so I did highway to hell and it was fantastic. You know, at a great time. And, you know, we did three acts and, and the acts would have been, um, I know most of the bill was, uh, Molly hatchet and mother's finest. And, uh, we did it and we had two trucks and two buses and, uh, we just, they did the tour in his highway to hell and their popularity became even greater. And we did a couple of, you know, festivals where we were second on the bill and things like that. Uh, and then that, that's where it started. So, um, Peter Mensch then, you know, became my second mentor for Joe Baptiste and Peter and Peter at faith in me. And I must admit, I worked really, really hard. And, um, so I, I didn't want to go back. I, I did not want to go back and sit on the same bar stool in a pub in the UK. I wanted to make a career of this. So I, I thought, you know, if I keep working hard, I'll, I'll, I'll make a living. And, and that was, that, that was my seems to have worked out. Long. So
0: yeah. ACDC highway to hell. That was with Bon Scott still, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so were you still with them when, when we lost
1: Bon Scott? I was, Oh. Uh, yeah, I was horrible, in my, I was in my, was in my flat in my apartment with, uh, I live with a girl then. And, um, the phone rang at three in the morning and I don't know who it was. I think it might be Ian and said, Bond passed away. they, Bond's dead. And unbelievable. You know, it's like it, it disbelief. So, um, You know, the good thing about it, it wasn't there was no social media, so it wasn't fucking out before everybody could tell the family and things like that. You know, yeah, yeah. And so we kind of sat quiet and uh, and really didn't know what was going to happen, whether the band would continue or not continue. And um, they made a decision that they, you know, they would carry on. They took a couple of weeks off and went back to um, uh, Australia to, to, to bury Bond, you know? Yeah. And then in Jeffries, and I did what I consider the worst job I've ever had in rock and roll, is we had to go down and pack up all of Bond's stuff and pack up the apartment oh, and no. send it all back to his family. Ugh. Great guy, terrible. Bond. Great, great guy. Yeah. You know, Bond was Bond. He was... You know, he liked to drink, he liked to party, loved to sing, but can one of the nicest guys you ever met. As were all the guys in A C D C.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and remarkably I've heard the same thing about Brian Johnson, that he's just an incredible guy.
1: Yeah, he is. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, Brian came along and uh, we were doing we were doing auditions down in um a studio in Victoria and and he'll tell a story, like he didn't know whether he wanted to come and do it. He was you know, living with his mom, he, was, he had nothing. He, Geordie were going, you know, they were playing odd gigs, but nothing. And I, I believe the only reason he went to the audition, because he had to come down to to London to do um a, uh, a, a commercial for Hoover vacuum cleaners. And I think yeah. if you, yeah. If you listen on YouTube, Brian Johnson, it's, it's, a, yeah. it's a beautiful mover or something like that, I think. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I've heard that story from him, too, and it's funny as hell because he, he just was like, ah, might as well go check out this audition thing. You know, it was like nothing, right? Yeah,
1: and I think he was in, a lot of people call him. And, and um, so he came along, and the band are waiting upstairs, and he's playing pool downstairs with uh, one of the, I think it was either Barry Taylor, the drum tech, or Keith Evans, and he thought they were the band. <laughs> so he said, when, when are we going to audition? And we go, the oh, guys are waiting for you upstairs. So he went up. and he, he, did a great job. And, um, it, they said, well, we, you know, and they liked him and he left and they called him back in and, um, he did another audition. And then I like, then it, we all adjourned to a pub and we sitting in a pub and this is how I remember okay, Look, it could be a little wrong, but the basics are correct. Um, and either Mal turned to Angus and goes, you tell him or shall I? And uh, you tell him. And they she looked around and said, Brian, do you want to be the singer for ACDC? And he goes, yes. And that was it. There was huh. no fucking hoo-ha. And, <laughs> and then he left me. He goes, well, I need some money from gas. So I let him, I let him, I let him a tenner to get That's some gas.
0: That's so funny.
1: And and Brian came in and it could not have been a better fit. It could not have been. It was tough on Brian because Bond was... Was family to everybody. Was, yeah. You know, you know. I'd imagine, like you, you, lost your dad, and then your mother remarries. You become his stepdad. It's, it's very hard to to replace the the original. Yeah, you know. And well, for Brian, he he did everything. And yeah, the band wanted, He you know he got a new lease of life. He sang. I mean, we used to play six in a row. Jesus, I mean, easy dc were they, they were a working band, and. He, you know, and he, he fitted in well. And, um, Well, it seems, we seems did, to have worked out <laughs> Yeah, we did because that first, was what, we, like we 1980 first, or something, right? We did the first show with Brian Johnson and in, in I believe, and it was in Belgium in a little city called Namur. Cause they didn't want to go out and a uh, lot of public there, you know, they wanted to try and did, we did a small, we did like three, three very, very small cities that you had to put, you know, you need a magnifying glass. And as long as they had a convention center and played them, they went there and the first one that sounded so bad um, that uh, when the band came at three o'clock, we said, this is sad, uh, we can't play. And the promoter goes, well, there's a better sounding uh, convention center next door. So we at three o'clock in the afternoon, we moved everything to the next day. We had a few lights, we got the sound system in, and we played in another convention. That was Brian's first <laughs> team. That's
0: funny. That's awesome.
1: And, you know, the amazing part about it, Brian's been, with you know, ACDC over 35 years, I believe. I 30, know. 35 that, years.
0: That's incredible.
1: That's incredible. And have been with him for nine years. Well, and and you know what's black. funny? I, and I, Brian's I, always the new guy.
0: I don't know if you've heard the uh, the new album, but it sounds like a friggin' ACDC album. You know, they've got, obviously, a, a, a recipe, and the new album could have been recorded in 1992. It sounds the same. Well, you
1: know, that's the great thing about him, you know?
0: Yeah. They don't I overcomplicate remember, things, that's for sure.
1: If I'm not correctly, that, after Highway Out of Hell, the record label said, you know, this is not the music moving forward. You need to change, otherwise we might have to drop you. Yeah. And, and Malcolm goes, great, drop us, because we're not changing. Yeah. We're ACDC.
0: Yeah, good for you You know, him. and
1: then they so the go oh, okay, you know, like there's another album here. So they, they go and prove the point by releasing Black Back in Black.
0: Yeah, which was massive. Oh, massive. Yeah. That's, that's a game changing album.
1: I, you know, they went to Paris and I used to go, I, I took all the equipment into Paris and I went to Paris a little bit and organized a bit of the studios and, and, and went there and, and, you know, was to go for a couple of nights and a couple you know, staying and playing and, and, you know, with Matt and everybody looking, you know, they wrote some, so they wrote some classic, they always wrote classic songs, but they all came together in an album and, you know, nobody wanted them to have a black album that will never sell. And the, the guys are great. They, they don't change for anybody. They do what they believe in. Yeah. And they believe in rock and roll. And like you say, all the albums, it's very much the same formula. It's, you know, an intro, the verse, a chorus, a lead guitar solo, and the out. Yeah. And, you know, you can yeah. listen to every ACDC album. If it ain't album.
0: broke, don't fix it, right?
1: No, you can listen to every ACDC album, and everybody goes, oh, they all sound the same, but everybody's got them.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. which which one are you missing? And yeah. None. That's funny. So I mean,
1: Don't, yeah, Back in Black, after the success of Back in Black, they re-released Dirty Deeds and uh, another one, and I... I um, ACD said three albums in the top 10, yeah. but what you have to remember uh, is back in black never made number one in America. Really? Yeah. And I think you've studied, you'll find the album that kept them off the top was Foreigner Four.
0: I did not know that. That's surprising to me.
1: Well, it just yeah, it's like the wall and, and all that. It just kept selling through. That's interesting.
0: Yeah. That's crazy. So, um, I actually, somebody told me a funny story and, and, uh, I'm sure you remember. So the monsters of rock show in Moscow, um, something about Russian air force fighters.
1: Well, you must've talked to Cosmo then I might, have. Um, we, uh, <laughs> ACDC, we were touring and time Warner. It we, they wanted to, um, Invest in CDs, I think, and and fil- films in Moscow. to decided to order this big concert, and yeah. they and we were doing the Monsters of Rock, which was and funny to say this. If I look to my right in my office, I'm looking at the poster Monsters of Rock on the Barricade, Moscow, 1991, and it was Metallica, ACDC, Metallica, Pantera, the Black Crows. Huh so we went there, and we we were in. Barcelona and we loaded up two of them giant Antonov planes. and We went to Moscow, but first of all, I had to go in advance to game. So I went up with there. We had four days off the tour and I went to Moscow for two days and I stayed in the communist party hotel and I was there a week after the fall of communism. God. And I remember in the lobby and where the busk of Lenin had been that they removed, there was an outline where the paint was, was not as faded so we went there, and they were going to do this show at a, a giant Air Force base called Tashino Tush, Tush, or Tushino, And it seemed to be a parking lot for for, um, for planes. And, um, I mean, it was huge. So we placed the stage there, and uh, we set about organizing the show. And we put, we put the show there, and, um, you know, a lot of people, like, you, you know, we... We trucked into, we flew into Moscow. We had to truck out because it was the last gig, you know, Stageco, the staging company, bringing stages up from Belgium and trucking. I mean, it was a massive undertaking. Yeah. And there was a lack of facilities. I mean, our production office was was a, a, an army tent. And and also, the, the, I had the opportunity to repay a favor to Joe Baptista. I brought him on as the site coordinator. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. Which was huge for me. Unfortunately, yeah. Joe had, had, had a really bad heart condition and he got pneumonia. And after he came back from Moscow, he passed away. Ugh. So in, in an amusing way, he gave me his first gig and I gave him his last gig. Wow. So, so think, you know, I mean, I don't find that it's not funny, but that's no, how it worked. No, I'm, of sure, course, yeah. I'm sure if I, if I could meet him now and tell him that he'd fucking die laughing. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So we played this show and, uh, and behind it was millions of planes and they were offering joyrides. I mean, joy rides so you get in a plane and you could buzz the field.
0: On military, active military planes.
1: Well, I don't know if they're active, but they were certainly military planes. But yeah. there was a huge military presence. There was over 11,000 troops that came in. Wow. I mean, we you know, that day's the second barricade we had the second barricade up, but the troops stood in front of it and they were the second barricade and they didn't move. Yeah. You know, and y- y- you can guess how many people showed up. It was something like 800,000 or something like yeah. that. Nobody really knows. Insane. Yeah. There was a lot of people. And, um, we were one of our planes were late, So we were working hard to get it. And we were trying to put the last of the spotlights up as six o'clock in the morning loomed. And that's, they lit fires on the hill. When the fires went, the kids ran to the stage. And uh, we just got out in time, and they just—they were after the plywood. But we got it up, and it was a very dark, gloomy day. And I said to my guy there, man, it's going to rain. He goes, it won't rain. I go, it looks like rain to me. He goes, it won't rain for nine hours.
0: <laughs> very specific, huh?
1: Yep. And he goes, why? Because we made it so. We made it so it won't rain. And you can do. You can put chemicals in the cloud to stop it from raining. And it did not rain for the show. What? But after nine hours, imagine you have a cup full of water and you just tipped it upside down straight away. The rain came down, and it was the worst I'd ever seen in my life, and still to this day. And it was the only day when I said, okay, guys, we got to stop work. And we were cold and wet. And six of our stagehands showed up, only six, and then we begged for stagehands. We got military. had no idea when it stopped raining. Customs wanted to inspect every piece. But in the loading, we got some people from the circus to come and help because they wanted money. And so we had six people in the circus, great workers. Let me tell you, great workers. So they came to work for us about three mornings, and they used to come in, and and somebody goes, oh, show them a trick. So they used to do some tricks for us, like they would – you know, three on the bottom, then two, then one and stand make the human pyramid before we started work. It was great fun. And then one of them through a translator company goes, are you the leader? And I go, yeah. I said, stand over there. He said, he said, and he put a cigarette in my mouth. I go, okay. Then don't move. And he stood there and he took a whip out and he fucking whipped the cigarette out of my mouth. I mean, that great guy. We said, give him cigarettes and we had a great time. Yeah. And, I won't go, but there's one story there which was uh, pertaining, and you'll understand this being a lighting guy. Yeah. We decided, if we stayed at a hotel called Rosseria, which had like 4,000 rooms, and if you went in a long entrance, you could spend the whole night trying to find your room. Yeah. uh, And we were working late, so back in those days, you had a scaffolding wind wall to stop the wind going through, to put your backdrop up and things like that and help support the roof. Right. And in it, Remember the old gray, very light lids? Of course. Well, all the very light lids we had were turned around and there was people sleeping in them. What? And yes, so because we decided not to go back to the hotel. And so the crew slept in. And, and Angus had guitar problems the night before, or the two days before, and he wanted to sort out his guitar. And he said, Jake, when I can come in? I said, the only time I got for you is 7 o'clock in the morning, if you can make it down, because the day's packed. He goes, I'll be there. And he came down, he started playing, and somebody in the back wall said, shut that fucking row off. And he turned off, he said, Jake, I better stop.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. That's crazy. That had yeah. to be just the nuttiest gig ever.
1: Well, it was nutty after the band's finished, you know. Um, yeah. Because it was raining, and we were trying to load out. And uh, the late, great John Campion from Show was there, and John came up. he wanted to do the gig. And he had generators, you know we had the main generators for the stage, and we brought in like five or six smaller ones on skids that we'd place behind delay towers in front of the house. And then you know after the rain it was like a, it was like a mud bath. So he gave somebody in the Russian army a hundred dollars, and they gave him this, this this track near the vehicle, you know with wheels on the front and tracks on the back. yeah. And he fucking towed his generators in the mud. You'd never seen anybody <laughs> happy and smiling and laughing so much as him and his tank track calling generators That's out. That's funny. Know? That is yeah. awesome. Uh, so uh, Great great, gate, yes, and um, the plain story is true. That's funny. Um, I,
0: You know, I mean, you have a million stories, and we only have a few minutes. But, uh, you know, all of these shows, I have to assume that, like, the biggest, the hardest, the most challenging had to be the big U two three hundred and sixty thing, right?
1: Well, for me, probably the hardest tour. I mean, I did was my first outdoor stadium show, which was Monsters of Rock. Yeah, you, you know, and I'd never done a stadium tour, and that was in the eighties. And you know, and that was ACDC and Metallica. It was a great show. Yeah, great show. Van Halen, I think, as well. And so I learned a lot on that and, you know, through my, you know, and and made a lot of friends and acquaintances that would stay with me for the rest of my business. Hedwig de Mayer at Stageco, Mark Guterres at Trans Am, or, you know, just to name a few. But yes, we built up and then, and then it all leads off then, you know, Michael Cole called me and asked me about the Rolling Stones, which, you know, Voodoo Lounge, which I took on. And that was really, you know, the first, that was a challenge because, we were playing stadiums, and it was a big show at that time. Um, you know, of course, designed by the, the late Mark Fisher, the late, great Mark Fisher. Yeah. And um, so I think I learned a lot on that. And then, you know, we built in, and, and I did a lot of shows. And for me, that was a big turning point in a career. And, and once again, you know, somebody else comes in who helps me. It's Michael Cole from, you know, I don't know where Michael is, he has company, but, like, he invented... The 360, the packaging, and a little bit of the expensive tickets, and he bought the stones off of Bill Graham. Hmm. And um, so, I did that. Was good, and then that led into a lot of other tours. And then we were doing Vertigo from you too, and we at the last gig we were doing in Hawaii, and it was the last gig, and we're thinking about going home. It'd been a great tour. And band are coming for sound checks, and and Bono comes up, and I'm standing there talking to Mark. I think Mark came out for the last show, and he walks up. Just the two guys I want. He goes, "I want to play in the round. Can I do it?" And I looked up. I said, "Boss, you can do anything you like." He goes, "Great." And this is the thing. I thought this is great. We're going to we're going to have a show in the round. Nice and intimate. It can't be big, it has to be small, this is going yeah. to be easy. it's going to be a great tour. And then Mark starts designing. Oh, and boy. really the band did not want to be in the round, because they're like a lot of bands, they must have a downstage edge. So it, was, it wasn't It was in the round, it was a third in the round. So there's more people in front than there was at the back, but you still sold 360. Yeah. And then Mark came up with this amazing design. And I know it was 60, because he said to I me, mean, Jake, how wide is a football field. I go by 68 meters Mark. Okay. So he designed the towers with a weight loading. So they wouldn't actually fit on the playing surface of field. Okay. It was messy. Jesus. And his idea at his, and when you hear it, you go, what a crazy idea. He goes, if I build a, st- a structure that's so big, I will make the stadium look small then the band will feel it's more intimate because that was the direction. Sounds crazy, right? That's good logic though. Ish. (laughs) Not good logic in the end, but fantastic logic is exactly what it did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was obviously incredible.
1: Oh, I mean, you know, I went to stage to the same engineer these towers to put it up and I'm standing inside of a tower.
0: Oh, they were that big,
1: huh? It was that, I mean, three of them went on a truck or something stupid like that, you know? Yeah. And just an amazing feat. And, um, uh. Was there more than one? Like, did they leapfrog? We had, we built three of them. Three? We had three calls. So, you know, the good old standard staging tour, which is one you're playing, one in front and one being taken down. Yeah. Wow. It was 38 trucks of steel. Jesus. And it was 48 trucks of production. Jesus. It was 12 Jesus. trucks of grass cover.
0: That's wild. That is wild. So I you mean know, we, was- we
1: rehearsed it in Barcelona and uh, we finished our first load at four four PM after the show. Because we had motors breaking down because it was 80 feet tall. And we had to get three and a half trucks worth of equipment up in the grid.
0: Good Lord. And we had
1: these little elevators on four motors and it was four one ton motors and they couldn't keep running like we we're running. And it was so hot. They kept on, we had to just let them cool down. So you could bring down a load, get a suntan and bring down another load. Jesus. That is crazy. And then the next day we went, we, we swapped it out to one and a half tons and we went to Milan And amazingly, instead of four in the afternoon, we finished at 10. So the first night we knocked eight hours off.
0: That's crazy.
1: You know, and then I I know when uh, there's always a point in the tour where you know you've got it. The Rolling Stones and Voodoo Lounge was in Cincinnati. I'll never forget that. That's when I knew that we got it and we'd be okay. And for me, it was in in three sixty. It was a German city called Gelsenkirchen, where we got out of the building because it's an indoor arena with a pitch, moves a dome stadium, and it was still dark outside. Hmm. I said, "Okay, we got this."
0: That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That big. Wow. That's crazy. So, um, back to the motorsports thing quickly because yeah. it's it's a shared passion. So, where did that come from? Just typical British boy, grow up watching Formula One drivers, and
1: um, I'd always had a little bit of passion for for Formula One, you know. And I used to watch a lot of IndyCar Car over here. I never got into NASCAR because I didn't think it was right. Like, you should you should be in a roof. Yeah, you should be open wheel. You know. Yeah, and then. The next business partner of mine who we won't dwell on very long cause the guy's an asshole. Uh-oh. Um, introduced me to Scott speed. Okay. Now Scott, B, Scott speed had just won the Red Bull driver challenge. So, and they needed money and he said to me, why don't you as Jake Berry productions or whatever it's called then he said, if you invest some money, then you can save some money on taxes. Which really is, so like if I invest X amount, I would yeah. say 50% of that. So I did that and I bought into with Scott. I didn't, I thought Scott was a good guy. Yeah. So I bought in and became a 12% owner of Scott speeding. I did not know
0: that. You know yep. what's so funny? I mean, I know Scott really well. I know his brother really well, and his father, Mike. Uh, his father, Mike Speed. I too, so yeah. my son raced for uh, Speed Concepts Racing through a couple of years of his karting career and was highly successful. Won loads of races. Uh, with Mike speed and you Mike, know, speed,
1: Mike speed could build a go-kart faster than anybody else.
0: Uh, I mean, still to this day, his team does very well. And, and uh, I'm very close friends with, with Mike speed and have nothing but respect for him. And
1: well, I mean, uh, I haven't seen Mike for a long time, but you yeah. know, we, 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 you know, Mike speed is, is what you should look at. If you want to sponsor your son racing. Yeah. Mike speed sacrificed everything to get Scott where he was. Yeah. Double mortgage of the house and financial trouble. so, yeah. That is uh, 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 the, the dedication of a family getting their son to the top, yeah. but also, also a dedication of what it can do financially.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have
1: enough respect for Mike Speed. I haven't seen him for a long time. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Scott in a couple of years, but we touch base every now and then. Scott and got hurt. A, I
0: don't know if you knew that, but Scott got hurt in uh, 2019. Yeah, very badly, about a yeah. year ago, right? Yeah, he's back, yeah, in a rally car or GRC.
1: Global Cross, for example. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so so I, I, I became a little partner of Scott Speed Inc., so. That's cool. And then he went to England to race for Trevor Carlin, actually.
0: Yeah.
1: I think in Formula 3, and then we found he had colitis, and he was like the typical American, I'm going to live an American race in England, which does not work, by the way, okay?
0: Yeah.
1: Michael Andretti will prove that when he tried to, didn't want to live to America. Live yeah, America.
0: Yeah.
1: And um so it, and then Red Bull had a lot of faith in Scott, um, Dr. Marco and, um, and Dietrich. They, they had a lot of, Marco had a lot of faith in Scott. And so after the disastrous season, we thought it was over, but he said, come back. I'm going to put you down in the juniors. So he went, put him in formula Renault, which is yep. probably triple A. If you want to make a friend. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and I said, okay, you cannot, you cannot live in America. So as, as, as what I did is I helped him out. We got an apartment in Fuschl in Austria, which is next to the Red Bull racing thing. And Scott lived there and we did formula Renault and he was hugely successful. Yeah. And That's... then he, he won the, he won the European championship and the German championship. And also I, I looked after another driver called Colin Fleming, who's, who's now very successful at Salesforce. And Colin came third in the, um, and the championship, and then That's Scott met and moved through, and he went into GP two, and yes. he raced GP two, which is grand, which is which is P P two now, and he he raced for, well, I think was the people that handle the best. Uh, oh, God, now now I've said that, I'll come back to the name, but the, Jacko was the guy, and then um, in the Formula two, and he finished third in the championship. Yeah, and. Heky Kovalainen won the championship. Nico Rosberg was second, and Scott was third. Hmm. So it was a good year.
0: Yeah, very good year. Yeah, no, Scott's a good dude, and and uh, again, you know, Mike Speed, nothing but nothing but uh, appreciation for Mike. Mike taught my son a lot. We we actually left Mike and. Um, we were even more successful uh, after that, but it wasn't because of Mike. It was just because my son finally came into his own and we went on and won super Nats and won virtually every race well, in, good. in 2018. I,
1: I enjoyed the, the, you know, the grassroots. We had a car once yeah. that Colin drove in, form, in, in Formula Atlantic over here. And I went around to all my friends. I went to uh, Cat Power, Upstaging, um, Stageco, and, and tape. And I said, I need a hundred grand. So we all got 25 grand and we had the car and had every name on it. We had the rock and roll car. Oh, that's cool. Never yeah. did anything. i never got back your money, but had a great time. You go to a race and you sit on tires and, and your catering is whatever is the local takeaway. I, I just had a great time doing it. Great yeah. time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's a lot of fun. I I actually miss it. We did a lot of racing in uh in 2020. We we were at Barber and uh Road Atlanta and Mid-Ohio and VIR. We went to all the big tracks in uh in 2020 but it kind of sucked because you know we did have sponsorship and you couldn't get your sponsors in at most of the races because the track was closed to spectators and it was it was just a kind of a pain in the ass year for racing but we did it safely like i didn't hear of any single person or team member or mechanic or whatever who who got sick so um, the last
1: race i went to was the formula one race in, in austria crowd 2019 oh okay yeah, because my really really good friend, who who I met through Scott at Red Bull NASCAR team, Gunter Steiner.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know Gunter Steiner. I, uh, well, I, I don't goes,
1: know him. I go, Gunter, I want to come to a race, and and Gunter goes, well, Jake, I want to go to a show. So we have this relationship, you know. Ah, uh, that's funny. And, and uh, one quick story: Gunter took a took great care. He is, have you ever seen the Formula One show, Drive to Survive. Of course, yeah. Well, Gunter faces a lot, and Gunter Steiner has not acted to put that on That is the way he is. Yeah. And so we were in the hospitality and, he, and, and the, the, the people take care of it. And the girl comes, she's Jake. He said, if you don't mind before you come in to, to have lunch, do you mind if we you know, we feed the pit crew and everything. Cause we got um, qualifying and things like that. And we got practice. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, no, it's same with me and rock and roll up feed the crew for. Her. So I went back in, into the hospitality, and there's three tables marked reserve. It was Kevin Magnuson, Roman Grosjean, and Jake Berry.
0: Oh my and, goodness,
1: wow. I said, this is very your You're cool. royalty. And the lady <laughs> said, you're with a boss, you can have anything you like. And uh, she said, he come in, he goes, we got qualifying, do you want to watch it from the garage? So we went in the garage, me and the girlfriend, and we watched qualifying from the garage. And oh, that's we cute had guys. a headset, we listened to the radio. Fantastic. Yeah.
0: That I is mean, awesome.
1: And then Gunter calls me up, I need this. And, of course, I give him VIP treatment. And I love him. He's, you know, he's what every team's in. He speaks straight from the fucking heart. Do, Do you, know you know a guy the, named David O'Neill? David O'Neill. Uh,
0: David David was the team manager at at Haas for a couple of years. Um, left, I think, in 2019, maybe 18.
1: No, it wasn't David 19. O'Neill. But, yeah. It uh,
0: was great. Yeah. No, you know
1: and and you know for them you know form 1 what's their budget like 120 million dollars a year or something yeah it's ridiculous i mean you can't survive on that if you go if you go there it's unbelievable so well and, and the if, problem if, if, is that's you're paying just
0: for a ticket to get in like you're not you're not going to win for that kind of money when you've got teams spending a billion dollars a year you know, you're not going to win. I mean, that's all there is well, to it. Well, so.
1: to a billion, but it is three, 300 million and 400. But next year, there's a salary cap and they all got to come down. Yeah. I think the salary cap's 160 million.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, uh, Hamilton just got the same deal. He just got his same deal. So When did he, when did he sign the deal? I think today, maybe, uh, for 35 million pounds for one year, a one-year deal. I thought they were going to replace him with uh, George Russell, but...
1: Yeah, no, look.
0: So we know Stroll... You may
1: not like Luke. You know, it's, it, Lewis Hamilton and Tom Brady, you may not like him, but you have to fucking respect him. Oh, of good course. Driver. I'm a great of fan of Baldery Baltas. I think he's a great driver, and everybody goes, oh, he's underachieved. So you have a number one and a number two in a team, and the same of the three teams. So in theory... You should have Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen, and it would have been um, either Charles Leclerc and Sebastian Vettel Ferrari. That should be one, two, three. Fourth should be should be the number two drivers, Bottas and Leclerc, and everything should be the number two drivers. Yeah, he finished second in the world championship.
0: Yeah, in yeah. Two years. You know, I don't know. I I uh, I think that the cars are that much better. Um, Hamilton's an amazing driver, he's a good driver, he's a very reliable driver, he does the right things when he needs to, doesn't make a lot of mistakes, which is good, and, but he's, I, the the difference between the Mercedes and everyone else is just that much, it really well, is. George
1: Russell proved it, didn't he?
0: I believe Verstappen's a much better driver and I believe a lot of the younger guys coming up are better drivers. Like I think, I think my son at 16 is a better driver than a 16 year old was 20 years ago because just the style of driving and the vehicles they're driving and the speeds that they're driving at now and the technology available to them, they're just coming up a lot different right now. And you know, then you go back to like an Ayrton Senna who's obviously unbelievable. So last year, our sponsor, by the way, was Ayrton Lighting. Uh, and so the gentleman who started Ayrton Lighting is a French guy who's a huge uh, Formula One fan. And he was a massive Ayrton Senna fan. And he actually closed his factory for two weeks when when Senna died, um, you know, in mourning. And yeah. uh, so he named and his
1: And then I went to, with Donnie Caron from Upstage, and yep. we went down to... Um, uh, circuit of America's for a Jeep uh, for a motorbike GP race.
0: Oh, okay, cool. And we cool. got,
1: we got sent down by Roby cause they sponsored a check, a check driver. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, another a good time.
0: Yeah, no, those guys, they have a lot of fun with the, uh... we were supposed to race in, in Austin at the, uh, at the uh, formula one race last year. And then formula one canceled formula four was supposed to do the, the Austin race like the day before so we'd be qualifying when they're practicing we'd be racing while they're qualifying that kind of thing right and it's such a cool thing because the garages are all kind of intermingled and they let you use their
1: if you get your pass your pass for that day you won't be able to get anywhere near the formula no no
0: no you can't but you're still right across a, a velvet rope from them basically right you're on the garages right across from them and you're also um uh, you know, you use their, their, their uh, pit boxes, you use the stands that they're, so, you know, you might get Ferraris, you might get hosses you don't know, but you use those stands because they're permanently mounted there for those four or five days or whatever. Right. So it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, it, it's cool just that the kids get to be there at the same time that the formula one drivers are yeah. there, but, but it's yeah. a lot of fun. So, well, Jake, I mean I, I know I've taken more of your time than I promised oh, that's, you I would take. Good. I
1: mean I, I gotta run run because I gotta do something of a call, but no, no. no I, 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 I think it's great. Um, uh, I hope it I hope it, it, it get well for you. It, it was a pleasure to no, absolutely. Talking. You're
0: you're a super interesting guy who's done incredible things. You're you're at the top of the business. You're a rock star among production managers for sure. Well you know
1: you know, I look at it and somebody goes, How what have you achieved in your life? And I go, look, I'm a a, a kid that comes from a village in England of 350 people. when I left. Yeah. And all I've managed to do is production direct five of the top 10 grossing tours of all time. Yeah. Manage a Formula one driver. Yeah. I, I wrote a book and you know, and then in one year I earned more money than the president of the United States. So I would say, You've done okay. I've, it, you know, I've done okay. I'm happy. Yeah. I'm happy with everything i have done. Never content because we always look forward to it. If there's other projects, I'm I'm good. But yeah, you know, I've worked hard for my life, but I've been lucky. I owe it to a lot of people who, who helped me along the way. Yeah, um, and uh, well, you know, that. give me.
0: God bless you, man. You've you've definitely yep. uh, inspired many, and you've done an incredible job. And I look forward to shaking yeah, your hand I, one day. And
1: I just want to see our business come back.
0: Me too. And, Me and too. All those
1: all those people out there may listen to this who think you're not important. You are. If you're a local stagehand, we want you back. We need you when we come back. Please come back. If if you're a local security guy, the same. We need you when we come back. Our business needs people like you. I agree when with we come you. Back. I agree with you a
0: hundred percent. Yeah. thank you so much jake okay you're welcome marcel if you want any
1: time you got something else
0: i appreciate yeah. it very much and Call reach out to me reach out to me to help on any of the stuff you're working on too okay great we will do all right my friend thank you
1: okay bye-bye Bye.